You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. What we like to do here at Whitefields, because we feel that way, we, we're allowing God to speak to us through His Word, and we're getting every part of it that He put in there for us to learn. And here in Acts, what we're looking at, we're seeing the incredible things that God did through the first generation of Christians. And as we do that, we also want to consider what God wants to do through us and in us here in our generation today. So if you'd please bow your heads with me, let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who loves us. You're a God who has reached out to us in history and even in our lives personally. Lord, you're a God who cares so deeply for us and we want to honor you and know you in that way. We want to honor you as the God who's worthy of all praise and worship, the God of the universe, the one who is great and mighty. And Lord, we ask that this morning that you would speak to us, speak into our lives, Lord. May we come to know this great story of your salvation Uh, this great gospel. May we come to know it in a deeper way and may it sink down deep into our hearts and may it have an effect on us and change us and change our desires and change our actions and transform us from the inside out. We pray that you would do that work this morning as we open up your word and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be doing things a little bit different. We're joined by uh, Pastor Pete Nelson and Pete was the founding pastor of Whitefields. I've known Pete for for many years and uh, when when Whitefields started, Rosemary and I, we lived in Hungary at the time. We were serving as missionaries and doing church planting. In fact, I was just thinking about this this week, and uh, Pete was actually very instrumental in how I ended up in Hungary. He took me on my first trip to Hungary with him in, in 2001, and on that trip, Pete actually introduced me to Rosemary, who would later be my wife. So back in 2001 in Budapest, Pete introduced me to the woman who would later be my wife. So a few years ago... Uh, now, Pete called me up and he said that he and his wife, Angie, they were pastoring here at Whitefields and, and he was, they were feeling called to go to Australia and begin a new work there. And at that time, Rosemary and I, we were getting ready to hand over the churches that we had planted in Hungary and we were praying about where God might be leading us next. And so when Pete called, we believed that this was God leading and that God wanted us to come to Longmont and for me to pastor here and for Pete and Angie to go to Australia. And so my family moved here in 2012, and now, today, this, this vision that Pete and Angie had for ministry in Australia, it's taking shape, and they're going to be moving to Australia in November. And so this is kind of Pete's farewell tour, I guess. He's going all over the place, and uh, before he heads off to the other side of the world to serve God there. And because of his history at Whitefields and because we love him and his family, uh, we want to send him off with a blessing today. We want to pray for him and his family as they go out, that God would lead them and that God would use them to do a good work and a fruitful work of spreading the gospel in that great city of Sydney, Australia. What's cool is today in our section, as we're studying through the book of Acts, we've come to one of the most exciting chapters in the book, in my opinion, one of the exciting sections. Uh, This is the place where we read about the sending out of the very first missionaries. So it's a timely text because of these things. And so what we're going to do is Pete and I are going to do like a wrestling type tag team. He's going to come up. We're going to high five each other. He's going to take over. So I'm going to teach the first part. And we're going to tag team it. And then Pete's going to share some of the message from a text. And he's also going to share his heart for Australia. And then we're going to have some of our elders come up and pray for him. All right? The title of today's message is Missio Dei. 
Please read with me Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a longtime friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is God's word. The scene here in Acts chapter 13 begins in a church in Antioch. Now a couple weeks ago, we read about how this church in Antioch began. Some Christians from the church in Jerusalem had gone out as refugees. They had gone out to Antioch. Some have settled down in Antioch, which was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. They went there as refugees fleeing persecution. But as these Christians came to Antioch, they began sharing the, with the people there the good news about Jesus and, and about what Jesus had done. They began sharing the gospel. And as people began embracing the gospel there in Antioch and putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, what was one of the most remarkable things about it was that people from many different nations, people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds were becoming followers of Jesus. And so strong was the witness of the believers there in Antioch that the people of the city took notice of them and they began referring to them as Christians. Little Christ is what they called them. And that name has kind of stuck now, hasn't it, for the last couple thousand years. It was there in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And the church in Antioch was the first ever non-Jewish Christian church. And it was a vibrant, exciting thing that God was doing there. I often think, man, I wish that I could go back in time and I would want to be part of that church in Antioch. One of the unique things about the city of Antioch is that like all ancient cities, Antioch was built with a wall around the city to protect it from outside attacks. But what was unique about Antioch was that Antioch was also built with walls inside the city. It had interior walls essentially to protect the different ethnic groups from each other, to divide them and, and even protect them from each other. That's how strong the ethnic tension was there in Antioch. Antioch was a multi-ethnic city. It was a trading post of sorts. It was a later city when you consider ancient cities. And because of that, it was a multi-ethnic city. And the population was made up of a mixture of Africans, Greeks, Jews, Syrians, and there, there was even a Chinese minority there in that city. And the city was divided quite literally by walls along ethnic lines, by, by inner walls dividing ethnic quarters. Well, what happened was that when the gospel came to Antioch, something incredible began to happen. As people became Christians, they began to cross those dividing lines of the city. And people who had formerly felt animosity and division against each other, they began meeting together and being one. They began worshiping Jesus and studying the Bible together. Together you had Greeks and Jews and Africans and all kinds of people, rich and poor people. They came together. They formed a new community based on this one thing, that they had been redeemed by Jesus Christ and they owed him a common allegiance. And here in the first verse of chapter 13, we read about the leaders of the church in Antioch. And we see that they were a very diverse group of people. First we see Barnabas. We've seen him before in Acts. He's a Jewish man from Jerusalem. But then we've got Simeon, who is called Niger. Now Niger in the Latin simply means 
black. They just said, you know, Simeon the black guy. We can't really say that in church anymore, but this was a long time ago. So they, they just called him that, which uh, means that he was probably an African. Now then you also have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was a city on the, northwest, or on the northern coast of Africa in what's now Libya. You also have this man we read, Menaean. It says that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now last week we looked at the four Herods in the Bible because, you know, we talked about how that can be kind of confusing. But Herod the Tetrarch was the man who had John the Baptist beheaded. He, he presided over the trial of Jesus when Jesus was being sent to the cross. And this man, Menaean, he grew up with Herod in that kind of aristocratic, privileged environment. He grew up wealthy, obviously. His family and Herod's family, they were friends. Now, isn't that interesting how that can happen? How these two men grow up together, they spend their childhood together, and then they go off, and their lives go in completely different directions. The one of them becomes a wicked man who resists God, who kills a prophet of God, sends Jesus to the cross, and the other guy ends up getting saved and receiving Jesus, and he becomes a pastor and a Christian leader, and he ends up having a great impact ultimately on the world as a leader in this church in Antioch. And maybe there are some of you who can relate to that. I know I certainly can. You know, maybe you grew up with somebody, uh, but your lives have really gone in very different directions. Uh, it was definitely true for me. The turning point in my life was when I decided that even if no one else will go with me, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that decision altered the course of my life. It affected how I spent my time. It affected how I, I spent money and my goals and my aspirations. It changed what I looked for in a wife. And I had friends who, you know, we grew up together, but they took a completely different path in life. And let's just put it this way, they definitely did not follow Jesus. And, and now a few years down the line, we're in very different places, pursuing very different things. And let me tell you, I am very glad that I chose to follow Jesus. Maybe you're here today, though, and you would say, yeah, I grew up with some people and we went in very different directions, but I'm the one who didn't follow Jesus. I'm the one who went astray. Let me tell you, if you're here today, it's not too late for you to turn to the Lord and set a new course for your life. But last but not least, after we see Menaean, we also see Saul. This man who at one time had been a persecutor of Christians, but now has become a Christian himself. He was forgiven of the sins of his past, the errors of his past. And now here he is, a leader and a teacher of the church in Antioch. So here we have the church in Antioch. They're worshiping. They're fasting. The Holy Spirit speaks to them at this time. Now I don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Maybe it was through a prophetic word. We read that some of these men had the gift of prophecy. Uh, maybe it was a prophetic word that was given to them. Maybe it was an impression that the Holy Spirit laid on their hearts where they just knew that they knew that they knew that this is what God wanted them to do. But I love this picture of the church worshiping and fasting and waiting on the Lord, seeking God, worshiping Him because He's worthy of worship and fasting, which tells us that they were seeking God for direction, for an answer. They were expectantly waiting for God to speak to them and lead them. So here in the book of Acts, you know, what's interesting about the book of Acts, right, we don't have a complete history of everything that took place during the first generation of Christianity. I mean, this book covers a period of several decades, and we only have a few stories, which means that what we have here in Acts are carefully chosen highlights and moments from a period that spans several decades. And so that means that whenever we read a story, or even the details of the story, it means that they're carefully and 
deliberately chosen to give us a picture of something. And the picture that Acts is trying to give us, that Luke is giving us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is here's what was characteristic. Here's what I want future generations to know about what Christianity looked like for these guys. This is what normal Christian life looks like. These people worshiping God and expectantly waiting on the Lord for guidance and instruction. That's why these details are here, to show us what the Christian life looks like. And so we read this, and and we are to ask ourselves, are these things normative in my life? Uh, Worshiping God, expectantly waiting on Him to give me guidance and direction. But here's the message that the Holy Spirit had for them. He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God wanted Barnabas and Saul to be set apart unto Him for a special work. I'll tell you what, both for them and for us. In order to be set apart for God, sometimes you have to set aside some other things in your life. In order to say yes to God, you've got to be willing to also say no to some other things. Whatever those things are that would keep you from what God wants to do in and through your life. And so the church fasted and prayed for them. They laid their hands on them. It's a kind of formal commissioning saying, you know, we support you. We see that God is calling you and sending you and we want to get on board with what God is doing and we want to be part of this ministry that God's going to do through you. So then we read that the church sent them off. Now that's a big deal because as far as we know, this had never happened before in the history of Christianity. Before this, there were people who had gone out, right? But they had gone out as refugees. And as they went out, they had taken the gospel with them to the different places they ended up. But, you know, their theme as they went out, their theme wasn't, we're going to go into the world and preach the gospel. Their theme was, run for your life, right? That was, that was what they were about. And as they ran for their life, they also happened to be preaching the gospel. But what we have here is something different. What we have here is something that hasn't happened before. What we have here is the intentional sending out of people to preach the gospel and to plant churches. This was the first concerted effort to do something like this in the history of the church. And that's why this is considered the very first missionary effort in Christian history. The word missionary, by the way, it comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. And it literally means one who is sent. And so we read in verse 4 that they were sent by the Holy Spirit and they went to Seleucia and then to Cyprus. They were sent by the church, but we see that ultimately they were sent by the Holy Spirit. And that is the ideal combination that we're looking for, right? To be sent by God, to be called by God, but also to be sent by a body of believers who support what you're doing because they can see that God's hand is in it, that God's calling you and sending you, and so they get on board with it as well. So before I hand it over to Pete, I've got two things that I want to draw your attention to in this section. First of all, I want to talk about the mission. And secondly, I want to draw your attention to a question. So the mission and then a question. The mission, this phrase in verse 4 is so important where it says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now the reason the church in Antioch sent them ultimately was because God was already sending them. The church just got on board with what God was already doing. And this brings up a very important principle, a very important doctrine, something that's central to the entire Bible. It's, a, it's something which speaks about the nature of God and it ultimately speaks to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's a concept, a doctrine, a principle called missio Dei, which is Latin, it translates as God's mission. 
And so what it refers to is that God himself has a mission, that God is on a mission, and therefore mission is central to who God is. In other words, missions isn't just something that the church does. Missions is something that God is doing, and he is inviting the church to join him on his mission. What that means is that missions is not just, you know, it's not just one of many things that churches do, right? Like, uh, like a department in the church. Like we've got a children's ministry department, and we've got a youth department, and we've got an accounting department. Oh, and yeah, I almost forgot we've also got a missions department. That's how it's often thought of and handled. But if God is on a mission, if ultimately God has this great mission, then the very reason the church exists Everything that the church is about is about this mission, the mission of God. When you get right down to it, the mission of God is, is what the entire Bible is about. If you look at the Bible, it's a, it's a narrative story. It begins at the beginning of the world, and it's focused like a laser on this one great story, the story of God's mission in the world to save and redeem a world that he created in love and people whom he created and who he loves. Ever since sin and death came into the world, God has been on a mission, a mission to bring salvation and redemption to the world. That's what God was doing in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel. It's what God was doing when he took on human flesh and he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. It's what God was doing when Jesus came and preached the gospel of the kingdom, when Jesus died on the cross declaring it is finished. It's what God was doing when the Holy Spirit sent out the church into the world to tell people the good news of what Jesus had done and this mission is what God is still doing in the world today and this idea that God is on a mission this is at the very core of the doctrine of who God even is God is a trinity one eternal being in three coexisting persons father son and holy spirit and mission is central to the trinity think about it where the trinity the father is sending the son into the world to save the world by giving his life and defeating death and then the father and the son together send the spirit into the world to carry on that mission and then the son and the spirit together send the church into the world to carry on that same mission See, God's mission is the greatest movement in all of history. It's something bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than us. It's what God is doing. It's what he has been doing throughout history. And therefore, to be a worshiper of God, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, is not only to be a recipient of grace, but it is to join in and get on board with this great movement of God's mission in the world. To join God on his mission, that doesn't only mean supporting missions efforts in faraway places. What it means is also, it means to be missional in every aspect of your life. You know, from the way that you worship, to the way that you work, to the way that you raise your kids, the way that you interact with your neighbors, the way you spend your free time. I like to put it this way, that being missional means being intentional about being incarnational. I'll say that again, because it's a lot of, uh, yeah, so being missional means being intentional about being incarnational. Now, what does that even mean, right? Being incarnational. It, being incarnational means inhabiting the space that other people inhabit. It means going and meeting people where they're at, inhabiting the space where they're at. That's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? When he left what was normal and what was comfortable to him, and intentionally, he became one of us. He, he inhabited our same space in order to reach us and speak to us and save us. And that is the heart of being missional. That wherever God leads you, 
whether here or there or anywhere, it means intentionally reaching out to people, inhabiting the spaces where they are in order to reach them and bless them and introduce the redemption of the gospel into their lives. Now, when you consider the nature of the mission, it also tells you something about the location of the mission. Because it means, therefore, that the mission field, if they, we're talking about God's mission, well, where's God's mission field? You know, we tend to think of the mission field as some faraway place where they're probably really poor, but at least they have great ethnic food, right? And then we thought, well, that sounds like a place we should go and do some missions. But when we think about the mission field, if it's God's mission we're talking about, then the mission field is, is the whole world, the whole world for which he gave his son, the whole world that he loves so much that he gave his son. It means that it's your neighborhood. It means it's every neighborhood all around the world. Wherever there are people who God created, who bear his image, who have been touched by the corrupting sting of death and sin, people who are living without hope and apart from God, that is the mission field. That means that missions shouldn't just be a department of the church, but mission should, the, the church should exist wholly in mission. Everything we do, whether it's children's ministry or accounting or youth, it's all to be done in small part as part of this great grand mission of God. And that means that to be a Christian is not to be a spiritual consumer who just comes in to have your needs met and then leaves. To be a Christian is to be on board with the mission of God. And what's so incredible about this church in Antioch is that they were a missional church. And I love that they were missional both at home in Antioch where they lived and they were missional in the sense that they supported missions in other places around the world. That's the model that we want to follow as well as a church. That here or there or anywhere it's the same mission and we're all on this mission, the great movement of all of history, and we get to play a part in it. And so that brings us to my second point, which is a question, the question. So we talked about the mission, now here's the question. The question is, what is the work that God has called you to? Because if being a Christian is by nature to join in and get on board with God's mission, then the question is, what is the work that God has called you to? The Holy Spirit said, we read in verse three, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for what? For the work that I have called them to. Their part in God's mission was to go out, at least at this time, and tell people in new places about, the, about what Jesus had done for them and to establish churches and make disciples. But for hundreds of others who stayed in Antioch, the work that God called them to was right there in their city. But it was still part of that same mission. So let me ask you this. What is the work that God has called you to? Some of you, God has called you to a vocation. You're a teacher, or you're an electrician, you're an accountant, you're a bus driver, you're an artist. I believe that for most of you, God wants to use you, God is calling you, he wants to use you in and through your vocation for his mission, to promote human flourishing, to spread the knowledge of him. Some of you, your parents, is that work, being parents? I think so. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I think it's a lot of work, right? That's the work that God has called you to. That's your mission field. You, you need to view that as the work that God has called you to. Some of you are married. Is that work? Kind of, a little bit, right? That's the work that God has called you to. And maybe there are some of you God is calling you, or he will call you even, to official ministry in the sense of being a pastor or being a missionary or raising up other people for God's mission to go like Saul and Barnabas went to a place that's not your home to share the good news about Jesus and to help establish churches 
But I encourage you to ask that question today. What is the work that God has called you to? What is your part in his mission? Because without question, God is inviting you to join him in his mission. And the question is, will you answer that call? In your work, in your personal life, in your family, whatever that work is that God has called you to as part of his mission. Amen? Let's have Pete come up. I'm going to give him a high five as he walks up here. All right. No. no, no. (laughs) I needed my wrestling outfit, though. Nacho Libre. But um, anyway, hey, what a great word from Nick, and it's great to be with you this morning. And um, yeah, in a bit, I just want to share what God's been doing in our family and some great ways that he's sending us on mission in our family. But look at your bulletins here because, you know, looking at the Church of Antioch, just the front, don't look inside. What scripture do we have there? John 4, 35. Um, I remember when we first started printing these bulletins, I think it was John 4, 3 or something that, uh, that reads, and again they departed. So that was, for the first few weeks, we, we kind of had that wrong, but uh, we wondered wonder why people were leaving the church. I guess they were just following the mission of the church. But So we got the reference what, right. John 4.35, it says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white for the harvest. And um, I love looking at the church of Antioch, because to me, it is the purest model of the church in all of the Bible. And I remember years ago that uh, just sharing with the elders here that we, we want this church to be a church like Antioch because Antioch was a worshiping church, a praying church, a teaching church. But as we see in chapter 13, Antioch, the church in Antioch was a sending church. And at the very core of the vision of this church from day one, it's right in the name, Whitefields Community Church. It's not because, uh, you know, people used to call it White. You know, like, is that a name of a town or something? No, it's based on this scripture that this is who we are as the church. And, and Nick said it so well that it's at the very core. Missio Dei is at the very core of, of what every church should be about. And so what an exciting thing to partner with God, to not ask him to bless what we're doing. Often we do that. But the greatest uh, activity of the church is to bless what God's doing and to see what God's doing and get involved. And that's really where we come alive as the people of God. So um, I love the church of, of Antioch. And as we, as we looked at that, and it, w- it was a sending church and they sent out uh, Paul and Barnabas. But I want to pick up on verse five. And so now they're being sent from Antioch. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they were sent out, and what did they do? They preached the scriptures, and they preached Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, He's the point of scripture. All of scripture points to him, and so they're in the synagogues of, of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This would be John Mark, And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So so he's a magician. He's into uh, New Age. He's from Boulder. And he's now, now we find him in Paphos. and, um, And he's not only a magician and from Boulder, but he's also a, uh, he's a prophet. So first of all, he's a prophet. 
but he's not a real prophet. So he probably considered himself a prophet and maybe the others, but the scriptures say that he's a false prophet. Not only is he a false prophet, but he's a Jew. So he's a very religious man. His name's Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, Bar or of Jesus. And so the name of Jesus, that's the Greek name. The Hebrew name is Yeshua and was a very common name with the Jews. Yeshua, Joshua was Yeshua. And so Jesus had a very common Hebrew name, Yeshua. In the Greek, it's Jesus. What a very common name. And so this, this guy, this Jewish guy, his name is son of Jesus. So obviously, who is his father? Well, it's not Jesus Christ, but another Joshua, another Yeshua. So that's his Hebrew name. And so he was an advisor here. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So he's an advisor to uh, the, really the most powerful man politically in the area, a man of intelligence, we find out. So a very smart man, very powerful man, who summoned Bar- Barnabas and Saul. So like Bar-Jesus, Barnabas, so he'd be son of encouragement. That's his name. And Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. And so this man, being intelligent, being smart, here's what God's doing through these missionaries that have landed on his island, the island of Cyprus, and he wants to hear what they have to say. There's a stir, there's a, there's a buzz, there's, people are talking about the grace of God and what God's doing in his community. And so, Elimus, who's also Bar-Jesus, see, he gave himself that name. So, that's a Greek name, Okay. The magician, and it says here in the ESV, for that is the meaning of his name. Really, that passage of scripture, it's, I think the ASV says it right, that in, uh, he had the reputation of having this name. And really what's going on here is he gave himself this name. And I'm going to get into that in a, in a moment here. But he, Elimus, who's Bar-Jesus, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, all unri- of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Just a couple observations here, and then a a couple applications as well. Names are important. (laughs) You know, they would, you know, the Jewish people would name their children, they'd wait a period of time until they could determine the personality of their child to give them a name. So the name is basically, and that's why oftentimes in Scripture, God changes the name of, the, of those who are enter into covenant with him or that unique relationship with him because the, the Jew believed that the name was a part of who they were. It was, it was basically an extension of their true self. And so here we have Saul throughout Scripture, but now he's referred to as Paul. Saul is Paul's Hebrew name. So that's his Hebrew name, and we see 
Saul, Paul, as a Hebrew up to now, but now God is sending him into the Gentile world. He goes to the Jew first. They reject him, but now the revival that's taking place in Antioch is now spreading to the whole region to non-Jews, and that's what a Gentile is, basically a non-Jew. And so Paul was also a Roman citizen, so his Roman name is Paul. Now, it's interesting. The name Paul means little. So we know Paul is little, small in stature. You know, we don't know all the reasons why his name was, why he's called little, but that was his name, little. Elimus, this, this um, Bar-Jesus, he named himself, it says by reputation, that's what that means, he named himself wise one. So you have little, who has the authority of God and the power of the Holy Spirit with this self-proclaimed prophet who's false, and he's the wise one. He gave himself that name. Now, those of you who are in sports, and maybe you're really good at sports, what do you hate more than anything when you get together on the field, right? Posers, right? Or maybe you're a musician. Do, Do posers annoy you? Yes? Someone who's all that, and they talk a big game, and they talk it up, and they come in. They don't know what they're doing. You know, I, you know I'm a poser in the gym. People have to tell I'm using the machines wrong or something. You know, they want to, I'm in, in, the, in the little thing backwards, you know, lifting the whole thing the wrong way. But, you know, Elimus is a poser, okay? And posers bug people, and this poser is bugging Paul, we see here. And he's, he's this self-proclaimed wise one, okay? But what he doesn't have is the authority of God. Now, when we talk about the mission of God, we have to understand that he's the sender. And when he sends us, he sends you, he sends me with his authority, okay? When, Paul, when Peter said, you are the Christ, And Jesus said, my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. As God's children, he has granted you the keys to the kingdom. You have that authority of Jesus Christ to get involved in people's lives, to incarnate into their space. And with the keys that are not yours, they're Christ that he's granted to you to unlock prison doors. And a lot of times we forget that we have the keys, that we have that authority. It's not your gospel. It's his gospel. It's not your message. It's his message. It's not your ability. It's his ability. It's not your power or your courage. It's his power. And we go in his name. And in order to go, we have to understand that and have great great confidence in Christ. And that's what the gospel does for me first. It gives me a confidence in Christ. The gospel is not just something that we go out and preach just to unbelievers. We do that because it's the only way to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is for me first because I need it. I need the gospel every day. And so in the gospel, when I understand the gospel for me, my acceptance in God, my validation in, uh, by Christ in God, my completeness in God through Christ, 
That's what gives me not, it takes away my own personal confidence or lack thereof and settles me in a Christ confidence that I belong to him and I'm his and it's his message. And once that's settle, settled in our lives, that's when we're in such a healthy place to go and to be sent and be part of the mission of God. It's not your mission, it's his mission. So Paul, we see here, though he's little, he's going in the power of God, in, in, in the authority of God, okay? But what, another observation that I love about this text is that we see a theme, a reoccurring theme about what God's mission looks like because God is constantly going after the unreligious outsider <laughs> to the plight of the religious insider. Who do we have here? We have this Jewish guy. He's a religious man. He's off base. He's holding on to something. He's holding on to influence. He's holding on to, he doesn't want Paul to talk to the proconsul. They, they're, they're invading his space. They're, take, they're entering into his sphere of influence. He doesn't want to give that up. And so he opposes them. We call Elimus, he's the, he's the religious insider. Throughout scripture, throughout the gospels, there's the religious insiders, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're constantly trying to keep the people away from the grace of God and the love of God. To, to keep control over them into their own little tweaked system of religiosity so they can have a sense of power and a sense of control. Religious insiders. But Jesus is constantly breaking out of that. And the church, to be the to be on mission needs to break out of that. Need, needs to break out of religious insidership. To be, break out of being just a club that comes together on Sunday morning and you, you know, like going, being part of like a tennis club and you show up every Thursday morning, you play tennis, you go home and you live another life. No, church is not just something we get together and we're part of a club that lasts from 10 a.m. to 11.30 and then we go back and we live another life. The church is 24-7. It's something that we are 24-7, every day of, of the year, every moment of every day. We're a family, and we're on mission. And the church has to constantly fight from being religious insiders. Because Jesus, who did, he was criticized. He was um, opposed because he was constantly going after the unreligious outsiders, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the, those who were outcasts of society, the lepers, the, those who had no chance of being integrated in society, that's where Jesus was going. And my friends, that's where the church goes. The church goes for the unreligious uh, outsiders. You know, because oftentimes we want to just... You know, we're the salt of the earth, and we just like to hang out in the salt shaker. When God wants to get us out of the salt shaker and into the world, because we are the salt of the earth. So think of just the worst, nastiest buffoon in your life, at the workplace, wherever. The most unreligious outsider you know. That's where God's going. 
That's where the message of the gospel is going. Those who feel like they have it all together, I go to church, I don't, you know, I, I do the right thing, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do, I, 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 I you know, I pay, you know, I give to, you know, I, you've got your tidy little life, and you're very religious, you don't need a doctor, you don't need a physician, it's those who are sick that need a physician, and you know what? The prescription is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated on the cross. That's very real and that changed lives. It's not a fairy tale. It's backed up with power. It's backed up with, with miracles. Right now, God is calling people. You're not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. Paul, we see here, was sent in the Holy Spirit, and this whole conversion of the proconsul was all a work of the Holy Spirit, not the work of Paul. Paul was just a vessel. Because sometimes we think we have to be the Holy Spirit. If I just get the right words, or if I just, I got to just say the right thing, or, you know, I've tried to be the Holy Spirit with my wife for many years. It has never worked. I'm sorry. But, uh, and she's by, tried to be the Holy Spirit with me. No, let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. And right now, the Holy Spirit is, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's his job, to convict of sin, and he's doing it. There are those who are convicted in your neighborhood, convicted in your workplace, convicted in your schools, and they want to know the answer in the per prescription, the answer to deal with the gnawing in their heart that the Holy Spirit's already working on them. And to understand what God's doing and to perceive that our lives, we're just not here on this earth just to build a nice little happy life. We're here for eternal purposes. That's why we're still here. That's the mission of God. That's Jesus. His mission was constantly going after the religious outsider. That's why Paul's here in Cyprus. There's this proconsul that is going to receive him. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. You know, it's interesting that the curse on this false prophet, mist came over his eyes. He was blind for a period of time. You know, this is the same way that God got a hold of Paul's life. Do you remember? He's on the road to Damascus. He was a very religious man. In his uh, religious zeal, he was going to kill Christians in Damascus, and God knocked him off his horse, and Jesus revealed himself to Paul. And what happened to him? He was blind. Remember? He was blind. But it led to Paul's conversion. We don't see that this blindness led to Elimus's conversion. I think that's very true in life. You know, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That the same rain that comes down from the sky falls on the Christian and the non-Christian, falls on all of us at the same time, the human race. But what's the change? What's the difference? You know, to Paul, it led to his conversion. To this man, it left to a, a hardness. And if you're here today, you know, oh, let, me, let me just back up. When we share the, the gospel with people, it's going to either soften their heart or harden their heart. You cannot help to have 
there, there must be, the, the gospel so radical and so true and ultimate truth that every human heart must have a sort of reaction, whether belief or unbelief, to what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross and to the resurrection. There has to be some, you, you have to be, you, you have to tune it out or you have to fall on your knees and worship him. You know, C.S. Lewis says it great. He, he's either, you have to have some sort of reaction. Either you have to call him a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord because he claims to be God. So there has to be a reaction to Jesus. But to refuse the message of the gospel, you have to harden your heart to the message because it's so insane and amazing and powerful. So when we preach the gospel to people, we, we pray for them because they might be hardening their heart, but man, we want them, their hearts to be broken, right? There's only two reactions. But the same for all of us. Whenever we hear truth, we're having different reactions to it. You know, there's a saying that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. The same sun in the sky that hardens the clay melts the wax. So when we don't let God's word soften us and humble us, we just get harder, right, to it. And unfortunately, that's what we see in Elimus, you know. God really took away his sight, but we don't see a conversion. But Paul, he was converted. And all this is sort of wrapped up in a, in a nutshell that this message that we've given is powerful. And God backs up his message with miracles. And God does miracles in order for us to bring the message. And so we, that's what we see in this incredible um, conversion of the proconsul, all with the encouragement that, hey, we're sent, and God's going to, he's going to send you with his authority, and he's going to send you with his power. And, and I just want to add that when we talk about those who are sent and those who go, the church in Antioch was just as much of part of this, this um, conversion as Paul and Barnabas. We're, we're all in this together because every sent one needs a sender. And so we, we're all in this together. So let's be encouraged in that message and great word from um, Pastor Nick. Um, with that, I just, they asked me to give a little segue in what's going on with Angie and I. So, you know, we, we passed on this church three years ago. We went to Australia. Many of you know we had to leave because of our visas. We thought... We were baffled <laughs> for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, I've been in California and um, teaching there, but all the while, um, just seeing if God would actually, if we really did hear from God, are we supposed to go to Australia? And I just, you know, we don't have the time this morning, but God has done so many incredible miracles, just unbelievable things to, to send us on the original thing that God, that he spoke to us. And we've had just an important few years together as a family. And we're just so excited for this new phase. And we, we just, um, to, and see what God's going to do. We're going to plant a church in the northern suburb of Sydney. I'm also uh, working, I'll be in Turkey next week and in Hungary. And uh, I am, uh, Australia is bringing accepting 50,000 refugees. So I'm working with some ministries in the Middle East to help receive some of these refugees who are moving into, this, into Sydney. 
So I'm excited about that. And also, incredible open doors. And I'm excited because uh, geographically, I'm going to be much closer to Asia, where um, I've been doing extensive work throughout Asia. I just got back from Thailand a couple weeks ago. And so this is all just things that have been coming to a point, And now, now we're leaving. I leave on uh, November 10th. Angie wished she could be here today. She's actually in the Springs getting certification for her new, her new job in Sydney. She got an incredible job in the field that she loves so much in the equestrian world. And um, just a wonder, she's just really looking forward to that. So that's what's um, happening. And we're shipping out. And I'm so glad to be with you this morning. This is so special for me to how this worked out where I could just come and share and then also have the privilege of just being prayed for. So, so thank you guys very much. I asked some of the elders that I talked to before to come up, and we're going we're gonna to pray for Pete. I'll take that from you because I'll hand it to these guys. Okay. So, guys, would you please bow your heads with us and as we pray for Pete and Angie as we uh, send them out to Australia. Cool. Lord, we pray for the Nelsons. We thank you for their history here at Whitefields. Thank you for bringing this church into existence and how you led him in that. And we, Lord, we also thank you for this new endeavor of starting a ministry in Sydney. Lord, we thank you for the vision to plant a church and to work with refugees. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed let a church be born there in Sydney, that you'd let these refugees receive the gospel or, or those who are Christians, Lord, that they would be plugged into this fellowship. We pray that you would lead and guide and provide all the way, provide housing, provide transportation, Lord, provide financially. We ask that you do all these things. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God on a mission and that we have the privilege of getting on board with that. Yes, Lord, it's certainly a, uh, a privilege to pray for my brother, Pete. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would guide his steps, you would bring fruit to his efforts so that wherever he travels throughout Australia, Asia, Europe, wherever you send him, Lord, that there would be fruit in his effort. And Lord, I pray that he would find that the fields are white and ripe for your harvest. Lord, I pray that you would give him discernment so he would hear your word. And through the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge and wisdom, uh, he would share your word in Christ-inspired confidence. Yes, Father, and I just uh, second all of the prayers that the others have lifted up, and I just lift Pete and Angie and their family up, Lord, that you just bless their time together. There in Australia, Lord, strengthen their marriage, help them to just work together, Lord, to carry your word to the people there who are uh, in need, Lord, and we, we just lift him up and ask that you keep them healthy, give them strength, Lord, and just bless their time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.